0: Song of Solomon 4, verses 6 to 15. Let's read. Amen. this is Christ speaking in verse 6. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of frankincense, Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Ammanah, from the top of Shenir, and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine, and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, campfire with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. verse 6 says that until the day break and the shadows flee away I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense and in verse 9 it says thou hast ravished my heart my sister my spouse thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes Now, I began to open up with you this portion of God's Word Uh, last week. There was more in there than I anticipated, so this is really another, uh, the second half of last week's message, but it's a message in itself. Uh, Last time we saw the bride's beauty, this time we see more the beloved's desire and the quality of it and why he desires what he does and desires it so strongly. And what that says to us following the Lord's Supper. As I said to you, uh, this book is a book of relationship and communion. And there are separations throughout the book. If you're a sensitive Christian, exercised at all, growing in Christ, pursuing him in word, in, in other things that you read, in your providential sensitivity, in your prayers, in your desire for fellowship, And as you look back over your congregational life, wherever you've been, and as you grow and are convicted of sin and grow in righteousness and grow in your depth of understanding and your depth of affection, uh, because the understanding is worthless if there is no affection. As you've grown in these things, you can surely see what the Holy Spirit testifies of here, which is, that Christ does love well and perfectly, but the believer oscillates in love, is strong and then weak in love, is faithful then unfaithful in love, is understanding and knowledgeable, and then foolish and misunderstanding in love, and so on. That the Christian life is full of these changes, like a graph uh, that charts the rise and fall of anything the temperature of this relationship does that too. And there are breaches in this song. Each part, if you wanted to some separate this song of Solomon into several songs or poems that are brought together into the one great song. And each begins with an alienation and separation, always on her side. She then seeks or she examines and she is distressed and she lacks and needs filled. And eventually in that portion of the song, Christ appears. He peers through the lattice or trellis, and it's only his eye you see. Or she hides in the rock like a dove in the cliff face from birds of prey, and he calls her out and says, let me hear your dove's coo. Let me see the face of the dove and the sound of the dove, for you are my dove and you're lovely to me. She searches in the city at night. She ends up being beaten up, by the watchman of the city, but then Christ arrives. Each time there is a separation, and as I spoke to you last time of her beauty, the reason that we're speaking about it is, is that Christ announces that beauty. It's not uh, simply a beautiful wedding day or something like that. That that it's a positive situation in which Christ looks at her and just tells her how wonderful she is. He's telling her that she's beautiful because there has been a separation. They've fallen out. He's not pleased. Christ can love us and take delight in certain things about us and even in an overall manner still affirm our beauty and still not be pleased about certain things about us. Well, that has come in again. And she has lost confidence I don't extol you to be confident the way the world is, which is overconfidence. That is what is called self-confidence. That is not um, uh, that is not admired in Scripture or commended. But I I use the word confidence because a believer must be confident in his love and mercy, or you will become legalistic when you fall away from him. You wouldn't come near him. You'll set a number of psalms that you need to study and sing before you come near him. There will be certain ways that you need to pray or leaving off sin before you come near him. You will feel uncomfortable in church. But you will say, as she did in chapter one, I am dark but lovely. My skin is tanned and and crinkly and broken because I was forced to work in the Lebanese or Israeli vineyard in the middle of summer for my brothers were angry with me, and she knows she's not attractive. We can feel all that, but what Jesus wants is the woman who's had seven demons cast out of her to come to him immediately. What he wants is for the sinful prostitute who's repented to walk into the Pharisee's house and pour out the ointment on his feet and to wipe his feet with her hair not to get it ready, not to check with the Pharisees if it's okay, not to check with the disciples. He wants her to come. He wants the Syrophoenician woman to come and to beg of him. He wants the blind man to call out and ringing through the streets of Jericho for his voice to be heard. Christ says to you, if you know that sin or falling away or weakness or emptiness is your problem, he says, come unto me. Come and believe in the gospel, even if you're a Christian, because the gospel doesn't say, do all this first, then come. The gospel says to you, even as a believer, I am merciful and gracious. Approach me and deal with this. He doesn't say stay away. That's what I mean by confidence, not pompous arrogance in yourself, but confidence in how loving he is, and we'll see in the sermon, he, he is loving in a way that makes all of us in here look so unloving. The quality and origin of his love, the kind of love it is, is far above any way that we love each other, even our spouses. He then extols her beauty You are fair throughout this chapter, we saw, because he makes her righteous, and he sees her contriteness. He sees her desire and thirst, and that's what I want you to know from this afternoon as you rise from the table and go into this week, that Christ welcomes the repentant sinner. Christ loves his contrite and weak believer. In spite of all the imperfections, he is always there, and if you come to him repentantly, humbly, poor in spirit, meek, when your whole house is falling apart, you come to him, he will receive you if you believe in him. Confidence. The con- that word, by the way, even in the Latin and the English, confidence. Fide is faith. Con with. So a, a Christian that is truly confident, it isn't someone that's full of themselves. It's someone that can see that his love is unshakable and you don't listen to the devil who says, don't trust that love. Hide in the trees of the garden and cover yourself. Don't expose yourself to him. Jesus says, come, come to me. Now we see here then that he is drawing her to him. That's why he extols her beauty. That's why there are terms of endearment. Follow me, he says, He draws her out from where she is, and the first thing he does to do that is to extol her beauty. And he says to her, I don't think you're ugly. You don't make me sick. You don't repel me. You are mine, and we will address what's going on. But I love you, and you are beautiful to me because you are in me. He draws her forth. I want you to be aware that as you met with Christ in the table, I think in a special way, it doesn't end there till the next communion. All that is is a catalyst. He's drawing you from this place to go into your week and into your month and into your workplace and household, into your relationships and marriages, friendships. And he's drawing you forth and he says, it's not simply at the tangible Lord's table I'm there. I can be with you. Wherever you are, come with me. Walk with me. Lean on your beloved. I can be with you every day in love. And you can sense and detect my love. Come with me. He draws us forth from the table and draws us after him. I want to see four things from these verses that we have in front of us. First, the place of presence. Second, the intensity of desire, third, the delight in love, four, the sweetness of speech. So the place of presence, the intensity of desire, the delight in love, the sweetness of speech. First, the place of presence. You see, there's a progression in this chapter from beholding to being with In the verses we saw last time, verses 1 to 5, that's all beholding. He sees her, he calls to her, and he tells her how she looks in the first five verses. But from verse 6 onwards, there's a change. And there is an additional idea that the Holy Spirit brings, which is the idea of presence. Now You see that in verse 6 in our main text. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, that's this side of eternity. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. That's the place of presence. You'll notice that it's very different to simply look at someone from afar than it is to smell their fragrance, to smell their aroma. Smell is a present thing. You can look at a photograph or see someone on the other side of the church hall and you can behold them objectively that's not the same as sitting with them you can smell their clothes you can smell their aroma and in the context of this relationship this this would be i suppose that uh, those who had been apart the beloved sees her beloved coming he's been away at sea or working and he comes off the ship and she sees him and he sees her but that's very different than embracing and and sitting together and conversing face to face and holding each other and he remembers as he holds her he remembers her smell that she smells attractive with the fragrances that she's wearing that's why we wear fragrances and she then smells her husband and that's presence and you know how powerful smell is it's a, a memory thing you can be drawn back to very intense experiences even from childhood just by the smell of something now, the Holy Spirit is compounding images here in this passage. The, 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 it's one on top of the other. It's not some myrrh, he says. It's a mountain of myrrh. That's, that's made up for this book. What's the, A whole mountain of myrrh? A little jar of it could cost you $10,000 easily. It's very expensive and used for kings. A mountain of myrrh, the Spirit says. To the hill of frankincense, he says. See how much this sense comes out in in the rest of the passage. For example, in verse 10, my sister, my spouse, how much better is than wine is your love? Wine is a thing of sense too. It's tasted, uh, you smell it. That's why it's in the Lord's Supper. We're not just told that wine represents his blood. We're told to drink it, to handle it, to be aware of it, to smell it. But then he says, and the scent of your perfumes, than all spices. Uh, The lips in verse 11, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are are under thy tongue. These are things of sense. These are very potent things. If I say to you, imagine a tablespoon of honey, that's a strong taste. It's very sweet. If I tell you a hill of frankincense, that's a very fragrant place. Uh, At the close of verse 11, the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And then the whole of verse 12 to 14, one on top of the other, it's a garden, the bride. Christ says, she is my garden, and I walk in that garden. You've been in a forest or a beautiful botanical garden, and the, the aromas that are there, very pleasant and strong. Well, this garden, pomegranates, fruits... Fragrant henna, spikenard, spikenard again, saffron, calamus, cinnamon, trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes. This is—it's a—it's—it's it's a, a feast for the senses. Now, if I go into that garden, I am very aware of the presence of that garden. I am very aware of the presence of these plants. If. If um, I go on to a mountain of frankincense, everywhere I go on that mountain, all I'm smelling is frankincense. This is the idea of presence. Now, it's one thing to behold Christ or to read Thomas Boston or Thomas Watson or John Owen and learn the engineering in our minds about his Christology and his atonement. These are important things, important things to lay down in our mind. But friend... You can have all of that and have never been near him or with him or smelt his fragrance and his presence. When we're told here that there is this mountain, I think there is this idea of Jerusalem and the temple on Temple Mount on Moriah where myrrh and frankincense and so on are offered She's away in Lebanon in the north she's at, she's on the border of the promised land she's not in its heart where the king is she's away and he says come come to where I am come to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense and i think what christ is what's revealed about what christ does here is the way the, the way that he dynamically works in relationship with us Um, he he, um, commends out of nowhere. There's a season of coldness, a winter of discontent, a time of declension. We become aware. We search the streets. We can't find him. We wonder if maybe it was just a thing of the past and all we'll have is the thing in our mind from now on and we'll never sense his presence again. And then... Somewhere, somewhere, watching the Lord's Supper, or in your prayer room, or the page you happen to be on, on the book you're reading, or when you open his word, or something another Christian says to you, it can melt you. And it just is like a key that unlocks something, and Christ makes himself known. He commends her with his voice here. And he looks. And he's taken with her beauty, which is his own beauty. He's taken with her beauty. He refers back to that in verse 9. I think verse 9 is retrospective. He's he's not saying in verse 9, I just discovered you ravished my heart. I think that's a reference to what he's saying in the first five verses. And this is what happens. He sees her. He is reminded, if I say that reverently in the context of the song, the beloved is reminded of the beauty of his love. He sought her out and he sees her. And he wants to draw her as God does, with cords of love. And he says this, If you want to know where I'll be, I'll be at our hill of frankincense and myrrh. That's where I'll be, if you want to find me. He shows himself, he gives a glimpse and he says, Come and find me. You'll see that comes out in verse uh, seven and eight as soon as he's mentioned the hill of frankincense he says you're fair my love he encourages her again and says come with me from lebanon my spouse come with me from the top of amana Shaneer, and herman from the lion's den and the mountain of leopards you're not sure if you can come he says you're not sure if you can find me you're not stimulated enough you don't have enough strength my love, let me tell you what you will find when you come here. You will find someone that saith unto thee, in verse 9, You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart. You will find love. You will find affection and tenderness if you come unto me. So he sees her. He finds her. She, she couldn't find him. And he says to her, You see me? And then he walks. Remember on the road to Emmaus. Is that where he, he made as though he would keep going? I think it's the road to a mess. He's with them. They can't see him. See the similarity. They don't know it's him. He's hidden from their eyes. They're despondent. There's a separation. We thought he was a great prophet and the one who would redeem Israel. And Christ made as though he would continue on. Sometimes he does that. And there's something in them, a spark. They, te- they mention it later. They called it, our hearts burned within us as he spoke to us along the way. Something is sparked in the heart. And they say, and they say no, no, please come, please come and abide with us. Stay with us and have fellowship. That Jesus does that. He shows a glimpse. He shows his beauty. He commends us and gives us a gracious word. And he says, do you want to be back in the realm of grace, nearness, and intimacy? This is where I'll be. The hill of frankincense and the mountain of myrrh. Now that hill of frankincense and mountain of myrrh, like I said there, I think in the context of the song must be applied to the capital city where the king is. She's a shepherdess um, brought in from working in the vineyards and looking after sheep and so on. He looks after sheep too, but he's centered in the city. She has to look for him in the streets of the city, for example. That's mentioned. He is the king of Israel, the king of Jerusalem. And when he mentions these things, the mountain of Myrrh, the hill of frankincense, we immediately think of Jerusalem, um, the place in old covenant time where Uh, these visible things occurred, where they were offered, where the images come from, where you went up there and you smelled the aroma of the sacrifice on the brazen altar at the door of the temple, where you smelled the incense offered, where you smelled the holy oil burning in the menorah lamp, where you smelled the holy oil and the spices and the fragrances that were on the high priest's garments that, ex- that were to communicate the beauty of the high priest to come. When you went in that temple, um, that there was beauty like that. And that when these incenses were burned, the smoke and aroma from them filled the temple, went into the Holy of Holies, and so on. And they were pleasing to God. Um, You know that vivid language in the Old Testament where it said God smelled the sacrifice. And it was pleasing to him. Well, the other way around too is that um, when we go into the sanctuary, into the temple, and the high priest is there and the things that he offers and so on, we can smell that beauty too. The the smell, the, the fragrance of the high priest, the fragrance of the incense. That oil that we read about in Exodus thirty it pictures the Holy Spirit. Um, Aaron was anointed with it. And his garments looked amazing and beautiful because they were a prophecy of the inner beauty of Christ. And his garments smelled wonderful as a prophecy of Christ's moral beauty and perfections and his grace and his love. And even the smell of holiness in that oil. So for an Old Testament saint or an Old Testament priest, when he smelled that, He thought this is a holy thing. Now we're in the new covenant, Jerusalem. This church is Jerusalem. Our congregations and our denomination ought to be Jerusalem and Israel. The church of Jesus Christ is Zion. And it should be the place of God's presence. Where Christ is. Christ himself was anointed many times as a teaching mechanism to teach the New Testament believer something about his presence. He was anointed for burial in the tomb with a hundred pounds. It was either a hundred or two hundred of spices. I, I, the, ex, the exact number is not important right now, an exorbitant amount. And even in his resurrection, you, you would be able to smell that on him. When he was anointed by Mary of Bethany in the house in Bethany, John actually notes in his gospel that the entire house was filled with the aroma. We sang last week in Psalm 45, it's told us in prophecy of Jesus that in his kingship, as the beloved husband, all his garments are scented, we're told with myrrh, aloes, and cassia. Psalm 45, verse 7, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than all of your companions, and all of your garments are scented with myrrh, aloes, and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. Now, prophecy says this often, and it happened even to him physically. These things are teaching spiritual lessons. Where Christ truly is present, there should be a sense of his beauty. Where Christ truly is present, there should be an awareness of his presence. Where Christ truly um, opens forth the content of his atonement work, his death, his justification, his substitution, his blood and his body, there should be a spiritual fragrance present in the Holy Spirit of God. Now, we're not children. We're New Testament believers. I don't light candles up here or show you an ark or a nativity scene. I'm not saying that to be proud. I'm sure we love bashing things that are clearly wrong and so on. But there's an important spiritual point that even the most reformed people need to get, which is, that um, the reason we don't do any of that is because God expects you to do these things in your soul. That's why these things are childish. Israel needed these things. We're not supposed to. I should be able to know that the smell of the holy anointing oil is something that I must detect in the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life and in my prayer room. And in the worship service. And that we shouldn't need a priest to wear robes. And to show forth a sacrifice and to burn incense. Because the reformed believer of all people must know, must be able to perceive that that is going on invisibly. I don't want to burn incense in here. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is here. The Holy One of God. Don't need Anointing oil because I must close my eyes in the singing of the Psalms in the reading of the word in the preaching of the word and in prayer and I must find him. Why? Because Paul says he's in you and me. He's in us. Well, why can't we detect his presence and holiness? Why or where is the reverence and the awe and the sense of his beauty and love? And as we perceive Christ at his table today, you must look at Psalm 45, Song of Solomon, in the words of the Apostle Paul, and seek out the spiritual beauty of your Savior, that you see it with the eye of faith, and by faith you can perceive it. These aromas were teaching something about presence. It's one thing to think you can see the Lord Jesus and describe his attributes, as the Song of Solomon does. It's one thing for Jesus to say to his church, Here are your attributes and what I see. It's a whole different thing for the two to come together in the place of worship and fellowship so he says i'll be at the hill of frankincense and i would even push this in an application i'm comfortable doing it that i mean i would apply this verse even to the lord's supper itself just in principle it's not a prophecy of the lord's supper but the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense i can apply that to calvary and mount moriah where the right things are offered And they are pleasing to God. Jesus is on Mount Moriah being crucified. On Mount Calvary, Golgotha. And he is a fragrant sacrifice. And yes, he was beaten and torn. He was pierced. He was pinned with his hands. He was crowned with the curse of thorns. But there he is, someone who only 48 hours before was covered in Indian spikenard oil in Mary and Martha's house. I think there would have even been a physical fragrance from him as they broke him. The, the alabaster box had to be broken to release the smell, but she poured the whole thing on him. That's why Judas was so upset. Was that, that actual spikenard would, was worth maybe $20,000 in today's money. That's what Mary did. It was a family heirloom. She had it and she planned to do that. It, that It was something you held on to for life. It was something you were meant to take a little dab of and put it on someone's neck or their forehead. And that, that was an application. She just poured the thing on Jesus. And the disciples were dismayed. But it's on him. Now when he's on the cross, forget about what's physically going on. He is being sacrificed. And the aroma to God is beautiful. That mountain, cursed as it looks, and the curse is coming on him at the same time, it, there is a beauty coming out of what's going on. He is offered up as a sweet smelling aroma, as a burnt offering, as a holocaust is the, the Greek word, a whole. He's consumed. And the wrath of God and God is satisfied and there's a propitiation. Beautiful things come from this. So we sit at the Lord's table and we see the poured wine and the broken bread and it does point to his, the broken body and, and his poured blood, but it speaks of him being alive too. These are lovely things. They're not dead, decaying things. That the bread is broken, but what happens to the bread once it's broken? It's handed to you. And it has life in it. It has nourishment. The wine, the blood is poured from him, but his blood is a life-giving thing. Christ became a life-giving spirit, Paul says. And the wine is there. It's a strange thing. You're at the table. The bread is the brokenness of the death, but it's life being fed to you from it. Why was the sacrifice given? You're supposed to eat it. The sacrifice gives life. Out of the death comes life. The, The blood pours out of him. The wine symbolizes his blood. It signifies it, but you drink it and it's a vitalizing living thing. These beautiful things occur at the mountain of Myrrh and Frankincense. But friends, though the the Lord's Supper is that way, I want to say to you that moving forward, arising from this place, this worshipping assembly each week must be a hill of frankincense and a mountain of myrrh. And your prayer closet must be a mountain of myrrh and a hill of frankincense. We don't take the Lord's Supper and then just go back to business as usual. Let it stimulate me with you and your minister, your elders, all of us. The Lord's Supper is not simply an end to itself. It's given for the strengthening and stimulation and encouragement of our entire standing before Christ and our communion with him. And would, how wonderful it would be if this place each week was filled with the aroma of frankincense and myrrh of his presence his kingly presence of the holy spirit so that it would fill this place as it filled the temple so that the priests could not minister because god is there and your prayer closet, and i want you to know that you might be face down right now on the canvas spiritually and i've been there and and i know what that's like You might be face down on the canvas and I know exactly what Satan will will do while you're lying there. He will put his foot on your back and on your neck and he'll say, stay there. Prayer is a waste of time. Nothing you ask about the situation is going to compel God to make any difference. Praying is difficult. You can't sense Christ's love right now. It's far away and it wouldn't be easily found. Just you stay where you are. What's the point? Aren't you sick of trying? That's he's a liar and a murderer and he wants you laying there dead spiritually. Don't listen to him. Don't listen to him going to Peter and saying, look what you have done. He will never receive you back. All your boasts. You were the leader, Peter. And there you were. Denying him so that that crowd in Annas' courtyard wouldn't tear you apart. You denied you even knew him. Run away, Peter. Stay away from the cross. Stay away from Christ. Well, Christ looked at him, didn't he? Christ looked at him from where he was as he looked here through the trellis, the lattice. And Christ, we're told beautifully, I think it's Paul that tells us, or no, it's in one of the gospel narratives, he has appeared to Simon. After Jesus made himself known to those on the way to Emmaus and to those at the tomb, the women, the scripture tells us that he met Simon privately, and we don't know what was said, although we can infer the kind of thing that was said. The chief apostle, the rock the one who the, the other ten would have to look to. The one that said, I love you more than all of these guys. They'll all they'll all flee, not me. I'm willing to die for you. And Gethsemane takes out the sword. But he crumbled and he's on the canvas. Why did Judas hang himself? But Peter didn't when he wept bitterly because the love of God was in Peter's heart and it sparked up and Jesus sustained Peter and found him and then he restored him friends you might be in a situation like that and I want it to resound in your ears that you can come here each week this is a beautiful thing it's not dry and formal it shouldn't be This is a beautiful place and the interactions that go on here ought to be beautiful interactions. That heaven opens and God comes and his spirit is with us and his word goes forth in power. This is where we meet Jesus. Psalm 48 verse 1 and 2. The city of our God. In his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the all the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, and the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. Is that that us? Is God here? In power? Is Christ findable? Is he detectable? Is his presence here? Psalm 46 verse 5. God is in the midst of her. Nothing shall her remove. Psalm 100 verses 2 and 5. Worship the Lord with gladness. Enter his courts with thanksgiving. Come before his face with singing. Is this a place that is the court of our God and a place of? Where God's face can be seen. In all of its holiness, wisdom, eternity, grace and righteousness. The face of our God. But your prayer closet too, friend. Come here and worship. Come prepared and come in your weakness. Come when Satan distracts you. Come and come expectant and sing and listen and pray for the preaching and the worship and expect to meet Jesus here. May there be a a revival. May there be a group of people who plead with the Lord on Sabbath morning, come and meet us in this place. We don't go because it's the right reform thing to do. We don't go because we want to hear Pastor Prakash and his great insights into the scripture. These things aren't an end in themselves. You must come and pray that God would do something in this place so that when an unbeliever comes in, they fall down on their face and say, God is with you of a truth. Not not simply that the worship is good and, and and they do the sacraments in the right way and so on, blessed as these things are, but brothers and sisters, have these things, but these things must be an altar on which we see and experience and know the presence of God. I want you to go from this place in this week and in your prayer closet. And he says to you, as he says here, come with me, he says, from Amana, from Shanir, from Hermon. Come, you're outside. You've drifted to the border of the promised land. You're, circ- you're circulating it. Come with me from there. There are lions' dens there. There are leopards in the world and in these places. Come with me from there. Where? To worship on the Lord's day and into your prayer closet. Why? Because it is a mountain of myrrh and a hill of frankincense. It is a place where prayer is offered, where there's a glorious aroma, and where you, you can sense and smell his presence, that he's there with you spiritually that the Holy Spirit of God brings to you the presence of the Father and Son. I will not leave you orphans, he says. I will come to you. And whoever keepeth my commandments, it is him who loves me, and me and my Father will come and make our dwelling with him. Is that real for you? Or is it just an exam question? Is the Father and Son, are they tangible? And, and, and with you in your prayer closet, the place of presence Then we see the intensity of Christ's desire. The intensity of Christ's desire. Um, uh, The next next couple of points, will have uh, less content in them. The the intensity of Christ's desire. Listen to the words of Jesus to you. Come with me, he says, verse 8. Come with me. Remain with me. Stay close to me. Come with me from where you are to be where I am and remain with me. You remember the whole book closes with what? She is leaning on her beloved, walking up from the wilderness. There's all this dating, betrothal, misunderstanding, declension, lack of enthusiasm on her part and slothfulness throughout the book. At the end, it, the closing scene is the two of them walking together and she's embracing him and leaning on his shoulder as they walk. That's where you want to be with Jesus, that close. Not seeing him from afar and talking about him, but leaning on him, trusting him and aware of his fragrance. He's right there. She is leaning on him that's what the lord jesus is willing to do i mean it is it is staggering if you just read what he said in the upper room i mean we're too used to it as reformed believers he says the holy he says to them he is with you and shall be in you i mean can you get closer than that when i described you leaning on christ's shoulder there because of our humanity you saw that picture and you said that's really close to lean on someone's shoulders is really close do you know what's closer to dwell inside them to to fill their soul you you can't be closer to someone than that We, we can't be that for each other but the Holy Spirit brings the fullness of the Godhead to dwell in the soul of the Christian and for fellowship to happen there. When you bow down to pray, all you're doing is giving vocalization to that thing already that is there. There is communion. There is union and communion. Jesus says to you in the picture, leaning on the beloved, and and in the New Testament truth, I will be in you. He says, come with me, and be close to me now there's all kinds of things that can be stopping that happen Uh, beloved Uh, the beloved himself says here there are lions dens and mountains of leopards this is a picture um, in the song of being in places that are dangerous I mean it might look nice being in Lebanon and seeing the beautiful trees and enjoying the sunshine but she's walking along there out of nowhere a leopard comes there are lion's dens there. And he says, that's, it's dangerous there. It's dangerous on Mount Amana, Chenier, and Hermon. All three of these mountains are in a range that's in the northern border of Israel. And he says, don't be there. Come down to Jerusalem inside the city walls, onto Mount Moriah, where the king's palaces are, and where the tabernacle and temple are, and where God is. And be safe. Be with me. In in my palaces, in my house. Um in my banqueting hall, where my banner over you shall be loved. And you, friend, just in your time and schedule and weakness, we all fight this. Some some of some fight it more than others. Um Satan can use these things. There's a leopard waiting in your providence somewhere. On the road, there are lion's dens. There are things that just that the um that interfere with your communion with Christ. Time, your own weaknesses or sloth, other people. I mean, Satan can use other people. He can just stimulate uh, people, as he did against Job. And don't, uh, don't, f- don't forget that. Uh, I don't know the mysteries of all of these things, but yes, in your workplace and so on. Uh, and, and it would literally sometimes, all hell actually does break loose. Like in the literal sense, that Satan can just stir something up in your home, uh, in your marriage, in your extended family, it, it, even in your practical things. Your car, your your house, all these things. He, he'll use them to suck the communion right out of you. You think he can't? You, can, you think he can't bring fire down upon Job's animals? That he can't instigate the Sabians to come and you think Satan can't do these things? As his as his angels seek to hold sway over entire empires, which is what scripture teaches, Christ says, come to me. I think that's why Paul says it's so important to pray and put on the armor of God. No, no one. How would Paul achieve what he achieved unless he was in the secret place every day doing business with God? I mean, that's where we need to be. That's a safe place. That's where you can bring these things that happen. The torn relationship or the situation at work or your busyness or inundation that squeezes out any real chance that you will have a significant period of every day to bask in the presence of Jesus and know him. Well, you get in there and you plead with the Lord. I want to be with you, Lord. There's so much to do. There's so much going on. There's so much weighing on me right now. I feel I'm being pulled under, but Lord, it may be my own sloth. It may be things I need to change, but Lord God, my Father, Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit, I want the kind of communion with you that the Song of Solomon speaks about, that the apostles spoke of, and that the saints of old spoke of. I, I want that. I want to know you. I don't want to follow from afar. I want you near. I want you to pour your spit out. I really do desire these things, Lord. That is done in the secret place, my friends. And Jesus says, come with me. Come with me. As you enter the world again from this Lord's Supper, remember the corporate worship and remember the secret place. Now, um, when he says this to you, how strongly does Christ feel about this? Does he want dry formal prayers? Or prayers that are well-ordered, that have 50 things on them that need done in the world, but aren't about you and him and your growth in love? What, how, how does he feel about this? Well, where there is this true love in the believer's soul, that's contrite and repentant and longing to bring forth the fruit of the spirit where there is real faith and affection for him. He says in verse nine, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart, ravished my heart with one look of thine eyes. This means overcome or to unseat the heart or to impact it greatly. Now, This is using a human experience from the poem, from a human relationship, to convey something spiritual. I mean, we've all thought various things about this. I can testify myself when I used to read the Song of Solomon maybe 10 years ago, and it gives this impression of Christ is just so overcome because he just loves you so so much and he could never think of harming you or giving you any distressing experiences. Why? Well, he just thinks you're... his heart is ravished every time he looks at you it's using the young betrothal of a young couple that are in that early stage of a relationship and they just every time they see each other it's there's a heart flutter there's they're just overcome when whenever they they come together it's just that excitement and that anticipation and he is just so taken with her beauty as Solomon was and what it's saying about the Lord Jesus Christ isn't that he looks down from heaven and is just shocked and startled when he sees you because of the beauty of the church and the righteousness he gives you but what it definitely is conveying is the intensity of the desire and the delight that he takes in his people and part of that delight for Christ it's not always receptive he's not saying, I really want to be with her because she makes me so happy. But I really want, like God is so different than us. I want to be with her because I I want to correct her and refine my bride and bless her and show her grace. I think when we're about to repent and it's real and that's rising up on our hearts and we're moving towards that in prayer and about to repent, I think the heart of Christ is ready to delight in forgiving that he 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 says that he delights in mercy. It's this kind of thing that's conveyed. It's not you are so attractive and Jesus can't bear to look at you because you're so beautiful. No, he he looks right at you, but he sees in you what things that please him. In this world, in the context of all that God has made and what God has done in redemption, Jesus sees things in uh, you uh, that that do bring him delight and so on. Um, When he sees contrition, repentance, when he sees you humbled, when he sees you selfless and and giving yourself for another, um, when he sees you truly worship, when you truly pray and desire things and really long for things that glorify him, these things are pleasing to him. But what of his own desire? I said there it's not receptive. That um, See, with us we want to give each other our, our love. Even in marriage. And even those initial stages of betrothal. That there is part of you that becomes animated and wants to give. But a lot of it's receptive. Um, because we choose who we're going to marry. There, There may be there's only certain people that that's even an option for you. And it's because you like certain things. And you see those certain things and there are good, pleasant experiences and, and that's built up. And some of that's receptive. I enjoy this person. So it can be a bit selfish. Now when Jesus looked at us, you don't need me to tell you this, that there was nothing, I mean we were cursed, dead, condemned, enemies of him. But I'm not going to go into that right now. What I want to point out to you is that um, Jesus' strength of desire and love towards you is entirely rooted in himself and not you. And that's revolutionary to understand as a believer when there's separation like this. When he says, you've ravished my heart, most of it is that he created you, that he redeemed you, he elected you, and he knows what, that he's going to fashion you into his own glory. He takes pleasure in his own work in you. That's actually a great release for us in working out this dynamic of prayer and so on with him. I mean, you can get down and pray and try and build your Tower of Babel to heaven and try, try and reach him I'm quite righteous. I know a lot more than I used to. I'm good to my, my spouse and my children. I have an honorable job. I might even be a missionary or a minister. So that, that gives me four more steps on the communion ladder to heaven. None of that's the case. When you go to your prayer closet and there's been distance between you and Jesus, he, the reason he will display himself to you as he does in this song is because he delights to do that. And what's that delight rooted in? His own love for you. Now, that love, that love is, it contains its own cause. He decided to love you from all eternity. He decided to love his people. His delight in them is not based upon their beauty. It's in his own delight to love. He delights in the believer and wants to meet with you in communion every day because he loves doing that. It's not not because you deserve it. Now that's helpful because you'll say, well, things aren't going well between me and God right now, so I might as well not pray. It's not very appealing to go to my prayer closet. It's not going to be enjoyable because based on the way I see myself right now, I wouldn't want to be around myself. And God might not send his spirit. Christ might not be there with me. Why? Because I'm like this right now. But it's not rooted in you. I'm 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 going to uh, close with this because we're out of time. It's not rooted in you. It's his love for the believer that is so great that is pictured here as overcoming his heart. His heart is overcome because of the greatness of his love. That, and you're the object of that love. And it's his own greatness that is pictured here as overcoming. He desires and anticipates that meeting. What is this love as we close what is this love this book tells us uh, what this love is this love chapter 8 says is as strong as death it's as jealous and as the cruelty of the grave that's the idea of immense intensity The the jealousy of God. Jealousy we usually think of as a bad thing. Because when someone's jealous, they lose control. It's such an intense emotion. Love is as strong as death. But the loving passion, the jealousy, is as cruel or as strong or as gripping as the grave. Its flames are as flames of fire. And then literally in the Hebrew, the flame of Jehovah. not translated that way it is what's it say in the av most vehement flame a most vehement flame it is the flame of jehovah what it's not enough he goes on many waters cannot quench love nor can the floods drown it if a man was to give for love the wealth of his own house he would be utterly despised now friend These are the glorious golden words of the Holy Spirit that he expressed himself. He knows this love better than anyone. And he's telling the church that the love Christ has for the believer is as strong as death. It is jealous. It is full of the pathos of God, of his very being. It is a waters can't quench it. It's there as a flame and you can pour buckets of water on it, and it doesn't do anything to it. You cannot quench this love. It is the flame of God. This love finds its root in an eternal past. It didn't arise in God's mind, because he saw you and thought, that person's attractive, so I think I'll love them and see how it it goes. This love had no beginning. And it carries the characteristics of God's own being. It's within himself. The Father and the Son loved you because you were elect in in the Council of Redemption, in the Covenant of Redemption, known, named, written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the Father loved you then. And the Son said he would die for you then. Do you see how effective the devil is married with our own infirmity and our worldliness? I don't think I said anything there that you don't already know. You say, ah, oh, I know that. But we don't know it day to day. It's, it, this is not where we arrive at Naturally. Um, our love isn't like that. Our love is pretty selfish. It's pretty limited. It, it's new. People love each other. Then they stop loving each other. Friends fall out. God isn't like that. Long before Satan even fell, God loved you. Christ's love for you was then strong. And it, it is a divine love. The love that's holding you and the love that you hope to find when you kneel down and pray, it's not a human love. It's not from this world. And it's, it's not just that it's from heaven. It is, the love itself is divine. It's not temporal. It's not low. It is divine. And Jesus said that, Father, as you have loved me, so have I loved them. It is divine. That's why it's the flame of Jehovah and it never goes out. Can I, can I put it this way? That when you bound out to pray next, remember that the flame, that the the love God has for his own son has the same chance of being extinguished as the love that God has for you. That's how settled that matter is. What a husband. You find him in that banqueting hall of your prayer room. Satan would have you, think, not see your own personal communion with Christ in those attractive terms. Of course, it's not in his best interest to allow you to see it. But it's true. You go into that prayer room and there is the flame of Jehovah. Jehovah his love for you, and that flame in your own heart. I have loved you with an everlasting love. It is divine. It is eternal. It is permanent. It doesn't know diminution. It doesn't fluctuate at all. It's fixed. He will always love you if you are in Christ. but I've sinned. I've become cold. He wouldn't listen to me. My prayers aren't um, impressive. He'll hear someone else. I'm a weak believer. His desire for you will not die, friend. I'll close with something we read last week. It happened to be in our consecutive readings, Hosea 11. And I remember reading it and thinking that's it. That's what this text is saying. She had fallen and he says to her, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma and Zeboim? Those were cities next to Sodom and Gomorrah. How, how can I do that to you? That's the love that even when Israel had sinned, when the true believer sins, in the Lord, bound to the believer, how can I give you up? That's because of the strength of his own love. There is no weakness in it. It won't change. It's an unchangeable covenant love. If he has loved you, he will never stop loving you. How can I give you up and make you like Sodom and Gomorrah? How can I do that to my own people? Even though they've fallen into sin, I will chasten them as a father chastens his children. I will make it uncomfortable for them. I'll tear everything from them to teach them. But I will not give the true believer up. How can I give you up? How can I? And he says, no, I will continue to love you. And the question comes up, why? And, and God, through Hosea, gives us the answer. You remember what he says? I am God and not a man. That's the difference. My friends, God's love is higher. God's love is, is divine. Ours isn't. God's love is redemptive and committed And in the fullness of God's permanent being that he's an unchanging God. That his attributes don't change. That he needs nothing. And that he can do whatever he pleases and sanctify and glorify anyone. There is nothing that the elect soul can ever pass through or do that will diminish that love in even the slightest thing. Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he says to me and you if we're his this afternoon. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse, because you're fully beautiful and don't need sanctification? No, but because my my love delights to be shown. And you are my sister. And you are my spouse. And I will always delight to show you that love. So dark as you are, shadowy as your communion is right now, Maybe you've broken commandments. Oh, friend. He will forgive your sin. And he will embrace you like any one of us for you to stand for him. And you are no less than any other of Christ's saints. We are all his sister. We are all his spouse. May God bless these thoughts uh, to our souls. Uh, this Lord's Day evening. Let's stand to call on him in prayer. Let us pray. Everlasting One, we ask that you would go with us from this place, as your glory cloud followed your people, we ask now that we would go in the presence of Christ, that we would find him in spirit and in truth, wherever we are when we turn to him. We pray that we would go in your strength and that you would have blessed um, all that was done. We ask that that the ordinance of your supper would still continue to be blessed to us as we meditate this evening and that all that's been said from your word would be a blessing to us. Teach us what it means day by day to come aside and to go to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense, the place of thy presence and the place where thy son is. That he has passed through the heavens, a great high priest. So therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. Oh God, we pray that each day we would grow in communion and love with Christ. So do this thing for us and purge away all our sin. Whatever is broken, mend it and heal it. All brothers and sisters in Christ here, draw them closer to one another. If we have this love with him, how ought we to love one another? So we pray that you would edify and grow these relationships. Be with each family, each husband and wife and children. This domestic sanctuary that you make where God is to be worshipped and sought and where Christ is to be and how often the evil one is interested in uh, casting in uh, to, uh, to cause disruption and alienation and separation. He is the great divider. He is the Diabolos, the one who casts the stone in between two brothers to watch them bite and devour each other. O oh God, deliver us from the evil one. If it please Thee, banish him from our lives, and and pour out Thy Spirit, that we may walk in the strength and power of God. Show us what it means when the Spirit is present. Humble us under Your mighty hand. Grow the fruit of the Holy Spirit within us in all ways. Make us bold for him. Enamor us with the gospel. And that we would speak it forth like honey and milk from our own mouths. That we would speak the good things, the living things. Help all our speech to be Christ-centered, to be seasoned with salt, and to be pure and clean. And for the edification of the hearer be with us in our hearts, give us uh, to grow in our own love, if we have faith that, removes, that could move mountains, if we excel in all knowledge and language, even the language of angels, and even if we're, we think we are other-centered to love our neighbors, and we sell all that we have to feed the poor, if we don't know the warm affection of the love of Christ in our hearts, it all profits us nothing. Help us then to see that these three remain, faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love. Let that love then fulfill your law and let that love fill every other compartment of our soul and life, that we would begin with the chiefest thing, not having left our first love, but loving him fully. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.